Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, That You May Come to Believe. It's based upon the lectionary readings for April 11th, 2021, the first Sunday after Easter. At the end of our gospel reading this week, the author explains that while he had many stories, signs, and wonders to select from for his book, He chose the particular ones he did for a single, all-important reason, so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. I, for one, am grateful. In this first week after Easter, I'm grateful that the writer of John's Gospel deemed the story of Doubting Thomas an essential one to help us come to believe. I love that a mere seven days after we shout Alleluia and sing Christ the Lord is risen today, John invites us to face our doubts, speak our fears, and yearn for more. More intimacy, more encounter, more experience of the living, breathing Christ. Thanks to the story of Thomas, we're invited to say the heretical thing we might very well feel as we descend from the mountaintop of Easter euphoria. Unless I see him for myself, I won't believe. What a fierce, in-your-face response to the possibility of resurrection. What an audacious thing to want, to experience the empty tomb for ourselves. To say, I need to become a witness in my own right. I need my own story of radical encounter. I want Jesus' resurrection, if it is real at all, to become real for me. How many of us go our entire lives without ever yearning as boldly as Thomas did? In the footsteps of the doubting disciple, we are invited to yearn. We're given permission to feel hopeful, cautious, hungry, and, dare we admit it, envious. Envious of those who find faith easier to sustain than we do. Envious of those who have experienced Jesus more dramatically than we have. Envious of those who, for whatever reason, don't feel the cognitive dissonance between the truth of the resurrection and the ongoing reality of death in the world. Thomas reassures us that our glorious Easter hymn is notwithstanding, the week after the resurrection has always been murky, messy, and complicated. We are not the first human beings to struggle with it, and we won't be the last. Struggle is intrinsic to post-Easter life. When I was growing up, Thomas always got a bad rap in sermons and Sunday school lessons. I was taught quite explicitly to not be like him. He was deemed the cynic, the holdout. His reluctance to accept the testimony of his fellow disciples, his insistence on physical proof, his late arrival to the joyous belief of his peers, these were held up as spiritual flaws, as signs of stubbornness or of a weak faith. The weakness is not what I see in Thomas. I see a man who desired a holy and beautiful thing, a living encounter with Jesus. A man who wouldn't settle for someone else's experience of resurrection, but stuck around in the hope of having his own. A man who dared to confess uncertainty in the midst of those who were certain. A man who recognized his Lord in scars, not wonders. According to John's Gospel, Thomas had to wait in suspense and uncertainty for a whole week after his friends first told him they'd seen Jesus. What, I wonder, did that week feel like for the disciple who missed Jesus the first time around? Did he fear, as I so often do, that he'd missed the memo, missed the boat, missed the glory, that he was destined only ever to know God secondhand?
What strikes me most about Thomas's story is not that he doubted, but that he did so publicly, without shame or guilt, and that his faith community allowed him to do so. And what I love about Jesus' response is that he met Thomas right where he was, freely offering the disciple the testimony of his own scars, his own pain. After such an encounter, I can only imagine the tenderness and urgency with which Thomas was able to repeat Christ's words to other doubters. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Because isn't this all of us on the Sunday after Easter? Don't we all wrestle with hidden doubts, hidden fears, Don't we all wonder sometimes if the miracle of resurrection will hold in ordinary time? Thomas's story reminds me that the resurrection story is hard. It was hard from the get-go and it's still hard now. Hard to accept, hard to internalize, and hard to apply to our lives, especially when our lives are marked by pain, loss, uncertainty, and death. If nothing else, Thomas reassures me that faith doesn't have to be straightforward. The business of accepting the resurrection, of living it out, of sharing it with the world is tough. It's okay to waver. It's okay to take our time. It's okay to hope for more. John's desire for his readers was that they would come to believe. That they would consent to the process, the path. The implication is that belief is not instantaneous. I've hardly ever experienced sudden transformation. The changes that matter most have always come sideways and in fits and starts, often without my conscious understanding or effort. Anyone who has battled an addiction, or stuck it out in a challenging relationship, or lived with a chronic illness, will testify that genuine conversion is lifelong. Maybe this is why the earliest Christians referred to their new faith as the way. A way is not a destination. It's a road to walk. It's an invitation to journey. John chose an encounter between doubts and scars to help us come to belief, and this year, maybe more than ever, I cherish his choice. Why? Because this is territory I recognize after the past 14 months of COVID, social isolation, racial injustice, gun violence, and political strife. Though we are a resurrection people, we are also a people in pain. The world around us is still wounded, and the scars we're carrying from this past year will likely last a long time. In these circumstances, Jesus' scarred body resonates for us in so many ways. We recognize his scars in the people suffering the debilitating symptoms of long COVID. We see them in the faces of those who have lost loved ones to the disease. We watch them bleed afresh in the victims of gun violence. We see the damage they've caused in the divisive ugliness of our politics. This year, in particular, Thomas moving his fingers across Jesus' scars to experience a birthing of faith is searing. If we reflect on it long enough, it may bring us to our knees. Jesus and his scars are everywhere. So... If you're finding the joy of Easter difficult to access right now, rest in the fact that Thomas took his time. Lean into the amazing truth that Jesus allowed him to do so. Hang on to the fact that Jesus opened a way for Thomas through the marks of his own suffering and trauma, sharing his broken body so that Thomas could find his way to wholeness. Contemplate the wonderful story of a determined doubter who found his way to faith, who came to see the wounded one, as Lord and God. The story that comes after Easter 
is a story of scars and doubts. This is a tremendous gift. Ponder it so that you may come to believe. For books this week, Dan reviews 1493, Uncovering the New World that Columbus Created by Charles C. Mann. In his previous bestseller and award-winning book, 1491, New Revelations About the Americas Before Columbus, Charles Mann explored a simple question that turns out to be quite complex. What was the world like that Christopher Columbus encountered when he landed on an island in the Bahamas on October 12, 1492? Exactly who were the first Americans? The most popular, the most powerful, and the most misleading stereotype is that he discovered a sort of timeless and unspoiled Eden and a people who lived, as it were, outside of history. In this view, the Indians were suspended in time, touching nothing and untouched themselves like ghostly presences on the landscape. Man offered a radical challenge to these conventional ideas. The so-called new world that Columbus encountered was very old, densely populated, and highly sophisticated. 1493 is the obvious sequel to 1491. Mann's subtitle suggests his thesis. Columbus did not discover a new world, rather he unwittingly created a new world. In 1493, Mann explores what happened to the very old new world after and because of Columbus. Both in his prologue and in his acknowledgments, he credits the book Ecological Imperialism by Alfred W. Crosby and Crosby's thesis of a Columbian exchange the title of another book by Crosby, an idea that he uses as an organizing principle for the entire book. The Columbian exchange was the creative collision between the ecological and the economic, between East and West, North and South, the result of which was what we now call globalization, 500 years ago. Quote, what happened after Columbus was nothing less than the forming of a single new world from the collision of two old worlds, end quote. It ushered in our so-called homogenizing, the homogenizing or mixing of unlike substances to create a uniform blend. The Colombian exchange brought corn that originated in Mexico to Africa and sweet potatoes that originated in the Andes to Asia. It took horses and apples to the Americas and rhubarb and eucalyptus to Europe. Tobacco, which originated in the Amazon and sugarcane from New Guinea, both became global manias and drove the need for slave, lab slave labor, a major section of the book. There was also an ominous exchange of organisms like insects, grasses, bacteria, and viruses that had dreadful consequences like the Great Famine in Ireland and smallpox and malaria among Native Americans. The globalizing consequences of Columbus's voyage brought a mixture of blessings and curses, economic gains and ecological curses, and social disruptions of all sorts. Since Columbus writes man, the world has been in the grip of convulsive transculturalization, The ecological paroxysm and the economic convulsion that began in 1493 helped to establish our modern world. Never before had so much of the planet been bound in a single network of exchange. For films this week, Dan reviews Pink Floyd, The Making of Dark Side of the Moon. In March of 1973, the English rock band Pink Floyd released their eighth studio album, It came after the loss of band member Sid Barrett in 1968 due to problems with mental illness and extreme drug use, and was called The Dark Side of the Moon. The album has sold over 45 million copies worldwide and become one of the most critically acclaimed albums of all time. 
It remained atop Billboard's bestseller charts for 14 straight years, 1973 to 1988. Its album cover might be the single most recognizable sleeve in music history, with its image of a beam of light refracting through a triangular prism. This 49-minute movie commemorates the 30th anniversary of Darkseid. It interviews the band members, music critics, journalists, and studio engineers about the making of the album, which back then was an expression of early adult disenchantment, a plea for authenticity, and the epitome of what is now called a concept record, boldly experimental, musically progressive, a sonic experimentation. The ten tracks consider the themes of insanity, greed, ambition, death, relationships, conflict, and time. Band member Roger Waters describes the album as an expression of political and philosophical humanitarian empathy that was desperate to get out. He says the album poses a question to us all. Is the human race capable of being humane? The lyrics of Breathe, to take just one example, begin with the words, Breathe, breathe in the air, don't be afraid to care. I watch this movie on Amazon Prime. And lastly, for poetry on this first Sunday after Easter, a list of praises by Anne Porter. Give praise with psalms that tell the trees to sing. Give praise with gospel choirs in storefront churches, mad with the joy of the Sabbath. Give praise with the babble of infants who wake with the sun. Give praise with children chanting the skip-rope rhymes, a poetry not in books, a vagrant, mischievous poetry living wild on the streets through generations of children. Give praise with the sound of the milk train far away with its mutter of wheels and long, drawn-out, sweet whistle as it speeds through the fields of sleep at three in the morning. Give praise with the immense and peaceful sigh of the wind in the pine woods. At night, give praise with starry silences. Give praise with the skirling of seagulls and the rattle and flap of sails and gongs of buoys rocked by the sea swell out in the shipping lanes beyond the harbor. Give praise with the humpback whales, huge in the ocean they sing to one another. Give praise with the rasp and sizzle of crickets, katydids, and cicadas. Give praise with hum of bees. Give praise with the little peepers who live near water. When they fill the marsh with the shimmer of bell-like cries, we know that the winter is over. Give praise with the mockingbirds, days, nightingales. Hour by hour they sing in the crepe myrtle, and glossy tulip trees on quiet side streets in southern towns. Give praise with the rippling speech of the eider duck and her ducklings as they paddle their way downstream in the red-gold morning. On Restigouche, their cold river, salmon river, wilderness river. Give praise with the white-throat sparrow, far, far from the cities, far even from the towns. With piercing innocence, he sings in the spruce tree tops. Always four notes, and four notes only. Give praise with water, with storms of rain and thunder, and the small rains that sparkle as they dry, and the faint floating ocean roar that fills the seaside villages, and the clear brooks that travel down the mountains. And with this poem, a leaf on the vast flood, and with the angels in that other country. 
Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for April 11th, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.